If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you? It's podcast time. Life is good here. I'm in Dubai. John is in Dublin. How are you, Head? How are you, Mike? Are you ratchet again? Let's just say in a part of the world that the Irish colouring is not well suited to. It is, in effect, living in a sandpit over here. But it's grand. I'm doing a gig and it's really nice to be out and actually working again, doing live gigs in front of a couple of hundred people. It's great. Nice. Who are you talking to out there? Uh, this I'm talking to an Irish business network over here. And I've just done a gig in, I think it's the Ritz-Carlton or whatever, but it's I'm now going to go mooching around. Although mooching around in 38 degrees isn't like mooching, but I'm going to go down to an area in Dubai, John, called the Creek which is the very yeah. old, old part of Dubai, the sort of pre-industrialized, pre-modern version of Dubai. And it's actually interesting to see the real, you kind of see Arabic life going along. You see all these little ships, these sailing boats sail all the way up and down uh, the coast here. And again, you're, you know, you're in the, you know, the kind of Straits of Hormuz. You're looking out of, at Iran. It's, it's an amazing part. Yeah, it sounds amazing. But I have to say that Dubai is one of those places that I've never really had a grow for it. What do you make of it? Like Dubai was basically... Uh, a Muslim friend of mine said, David, Dubai is Vegas for Muslims, right? <laughs> so basically, it's it's like Vegas, and it's kind of a big strip. It's, it's an extraordinary place in the sense that you may or may not like it. It may not be to your tastes, but just the fact that it exists, the fact that this city exists, the fact that this city was built, you know, out of nothing, out of the desert, is a kind yeah. of phenomenon. Now, it goes against every metric of sustainability and carbon neutrality and all that, because it's built on oil money. The whole thing is built on oil money. But if you go back, this part of the world, they were pearl fishermen. That's what made Dubai a thing. All around here, there were pearl beds, and they used to dive for pearls and then export the pearls to India, to the state of Gujarat in India. And in Gujarat in India, they shone up the pearls they were actually incredibly good tradesmen. And then they sold on the pearls further down the Indian coast and into the Indian hinterland. So this has always been very closely linked with India, much more so 
than with the Brits who came in later. So it's a kind of a fascinating place. And again, it's an interesting because the Creek, the original inhabitants of the Creek were Iranians. And but the Dubai, okay. sort of official Dubai, can't stand Iran. It's the great Satan. It's their great enemy. Even though it's only a couple of hundred miles away. And yeah. the Straits of Hormuz, which is probably the most strategic maritime channel in the world, is again a couple of hundred miles away. And Dubai is also the kind of beacon of Western capitalism in the middle of the Arab world. It's Well, it's a beacon of Western capitalism. It's also drip-fed money by its richer cousin, the UAE, in Abu Dhabi, which actually right. has the oil. So Dubai doesn't have oil, but what it has is it's got everything else. But it's, you know, what is what fascinates me, what fascinates me is I've been visiting this part of the world now for quite some time. And I've always been interested in the history of why it was a thing, as in why did the Brits come here? The Brits came here, obviously, because of oil. And the yeah. Brits had already stitched up the... Uh, you know the you know BP. Yes, yes, of course. Well, you know that that actually you know we think now it stands for British Petroleum, but yeah. it actually stood for Britain and Persia because it was oh, the yes, actual Persian oil fields that they came to get, and of course the Persian oil fields are over in Iran, which is very close, and then they found oil here and all the way up and down this part of the coast and on the border of Saudi Arabia, and this has made this place phenomenally wealthy, but what. Fascinates me, John. We are now talking on 9-11, right? The anniversary, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. What is very, very clear is just how much America has lost in this region and just how much the American invasion of Iraq and the American pullout of Afghanistan, but particularly Iraq, has completely reframed relationships. So much so, John, that Israeli tourists are coming to Dubai. That would never have happened a few years ago, that... The alliance now in, the, in, the, in this part of the world, a tacit alliance is between Israel, Saudi Arabia. Think about it. Saudi Arabia is the keeper of the flame. It's where Mecca is. It's where Islam started. Sure. Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the Gulf states, the United Arab Emirates, are in a, not an official alliance, but a tacit alliance against the Ark in the north, which is, of course, Iran, Afghanistan, and Turkey now, of course, Iran and Turkey don't particularly like each other for historical reasons. But the interesting kingmaker now, John, in the middle of all this is Qatar, that tiny place that they're going to have the World Cup in next year that is rich on gas, not oil. Just gas makes Qatar rich. They yeah. are now the kingmakers in Afghanistan. They were the brokers of the peace in Afghanistan. They were the brokers of the American pullout. And they are arch enemies now of Saudi Arabia. So it's all completely changed. Yeah, but how, how did they wangle themselves into such a position of power and influence for such a small nation? Well, they're check writers, right? They, they believe in writing checks, right? And like all this part of the world, all this part of the world are non-democratic principalities. Mm. So what they don't like in this part of the world are Democrats, particularly because they will feel that, you know, it's only a hop, skip and junk before. If they like Democrats, you're going to have all sorts of, or you're going to have people looking at their regimes. So Qatar fell out really badly with Saudi Arabia and the UAE about five or six years ago because of a difference over Hamas, Hezbollah, the Muslim yeah. Brotherhood, all these people they were supporting from Libya to Egypt to Gaza to the West Bank, etc. 
And then Qatar got into a relationship with Turkey and they were financing Erdogan's current account deficit for a long, long time. In oh, return, right. in return, they were given the place at the top table that used to be reserved for Turkey because Turkey's a huge regional power. Mm. And so that's how they kind of inveigle their way in. And what they're doing is they're supporting Erdogan because Erdogan has dreams of a second Ottoman Empire, doesn't particularly like the Saudis, doesn't like the Syrians at all, Assad. And what this has done, this has allowed Qatar to get in. And they managed to give safe haven to a lot of the Al-Qaeda stroke Taliban guys who have now Mm. gone back into uh, Afghanistan. So it is fascinating. But the interesting thing, the interesting thing is just how not present America is in all these discussions. Like When I first came here years and years ago, America was the dominant, dominant player, right? By a country mile. Yeah. And now you just see America's gone. It's left the scene. It's completely left the scene. Well, of course, after the pullout of Afghanistan, they've virtually no presence left in, in the area. But their influence was beginning to dwindle there anyway, wasn't it? Look, the Americans invaded Iraq in order to destroy Iran. And Iran has become by far and away the most powerful country in the region as a result of the American invasion of Iraq. So the Americans went into Iraq and Donald Rumsfeld, who passed away recently, said uh, at the cabinet table, will we turn left or right after we've done this, after they'd destroyed (laughs) Saddam, right? And that was a sort of macho, that was a sort of macho thing. Will we go left into Syria or will we go right into Iran? In the event, the Americans got bogged down in Iraq and Iran began to support and give both economic support and military support to the Shias in Iraq, who are now much more powerful than they ever were under our friend Saddam. And there is a Shia arc from Hezbollah in South Lebanon all the way through the Assad government in Damascus, all the way through Baghdad and all the way to Tehran. So there's a sort of a Shia arc which the Americans were intent on destroying. In fact, they facilitated. And that's much more powerful. And that, of course, has made the Israelis get into bed with, crazy as it sounds, the leaders of Sunni Islam, who are the Saudi Arabians. So the whole thing is recalibrated all the time. And then, of course, you have Turkey not knowing which way to jump, but feeling itself to be much bigger than everybody else. And then further south and towards the Mediterranean, you have Egypt, and the ongoing struggle with the uh, Islamic and the Muslim Brotherhood. So the whole place is fascinating. When you're, when you're in Dubai, John, what you get a sense is that nobody here actually gives a shit. That the, How do you mean? Well, the, the Westerners here aren't talking like this. They're not discussing these things, you know. It's only when you start talking to Arabic people here that you get all this sort of stuff. The okay, Westerners right. here are just much more talking about what's on Netflix tonight and uh, <laughs> can we make a few quid and, you know, can we flip a property or... Do you know what I mean? It's quite well, interesting. Well, I suppose so, I would imagine that most of the Westerners there are there for a relatively short period of time. Get in, get well, out, get in, make your money, go back home or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I would imagine. I don't, I don't know. Well, there's a lot of people who have been here for a while, but I think that is the case. It's just that it also shows how successful Dubai has been in creating a bubble here. And that bubble is where the Westerners live. But what is really phenomenal is you feel that you're actually close to the action here. It's full of yeah. Indians, Asians, Chinese, Pakistanis, Arabs. It has this feeling that this is the future. If you know what I mean, that when you come back to Europe, it's like 
you kind of breathe easy. It's a sigh of relief. It's like, yeah. okay, fine. Whereas when you're here, you see this teeming mass of humanity and it's, some of it's not pretty at all. It has all the upsides and all the downsides of a major, major conurbation. But there's a great book. You know, I like always referring to books, John. There's a great book. <laughs> we referred to it in the podcast before called A History of Future Cities. And it takes, Dubai is the final city, but the three cities it actually deals with are three man-made cities that were made by people out of nowhere. One is Bombay in yeah. India. The other was St. Petersburg in Russia. And the third is Shanghai in China. And the story of those three cities is the story of man over nature. It's the story of building things despite the environment. So for example, Peter the Great built Leningrad or St. Petersburg on a marsh, yes, which nobody yeah, yeah. would ever build on. Yeah, I knew that about uh, Shanghai and St. Petersburg, but I didn't know that about Mumbai. What was the story about Mumbai? Well, Mumbai was Bombay, and Bombay was originally a, it means Bombay. It means nice bay in, mm, yeah. in Portuguese, because yeah. uh, the Portuguese came there first. It was a tiny little trading outpost. And then the Portuguese came, then the Dutch came, but the Brits came finally, and the Brits recreated a whole new city there. They built a whole new commercial city, which was basically the export port for the looting, the wholesale looting of India, which the Brits, I mean, the reason the Brits wanted to keep on to the jewel in the crown, because they were making so much money out of it. Of course, of course. You, you yeah. forget, like if you look at India on the map, it is an amazing peninsula between east and west. So to the east, it's got China, Borneo, Indonesia, Thailand, all those places, right? And to the west, it's got Europe and Africa, and it's got a 5,000-mile coastline. So it's full of trade. And, you know, years and years ago, Pliny the Elder, John, I've mentioned him before, the Roman, the Roman scribe, Pliny complained. The, he complained even Sounds like something out of, out of Lord of the Rings. I, well, listen, I think Lord of the Rings got all his, Tolkien got all his great material from the Romans, I'd say. But yeah. Pliny the Elder complained around the time of Christ, just after Christ, Augustus, the first emperor, about how much Roman gold was going to India. And he was moaning about this because Rome had a massive trade deficit with India because India produced everything. Everything, silks yeah, 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 and yeah. gems and everything, right? So it always has been a massive, massive powerhouse. And of course, the Brits stumbled across it, looted it, and loot is, a, is, is an Indian word. It's a Hindu word to loot. Actually, so too oh. is cash. Cash is a Tamil word. So these people are miles ahead of us in terms of finance wow. and money and everything. okay. Yeah. Didn't know that. Yeah. So cash is the Tamil <laughs> word for cash. Right. But the Brits set up Bombay as their administrative centre. And of course, they were trading across the waters with Kenya and all of East Africa, which they owned yeah. too, like yeah. Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya, all those sort of things. And they created a city out of nothing. The Russians created a city out of nothing. The Chinese didn't create Shanghai. The West created Shanghai. It was Western traders divvied up Shanghai into four quarters and right. they traded all of the stuff of China out of Shanghai. They got licenses. And Dubai is kind of the same model. It's where people want to trade if they're coming to the Middle East. But there's also another story, which is very interesting, John, which is rarely told. I have a good friend here who's married to a Lebanese woman and I've been to dinner in their house a good few times. Mm. And always at dinner in their house is brilliant. You meet Kuwaitis, Iraqis, Syrians, etc. And we forget that Dubai is, for many, many Arab folk, a type of New York. So if you're from Kuwait and you're a liberated woman, well, then you can't be liberated because it's 
pretty conservative. Right. Likewise, yeah. in Syria, you can't. Lebanon, you can, but Lebanon's economy is destroyed. So you can be liberated in Lebanon, but the economy is a disaster. So what sure, you the find whole in Iraq, is a disaster. yeah. So you, what you find is that the educated Arabic elite are now living also in Dubai, side by side with the Westerners. Except, as far as I can see, the Westerners don't know this. So you've got this whole flowering and flourishing of Arabic culture here, side by side with the commercial West, and it's basically it's Arabs who want to live in a tolerant Western society, particularly Arab women who yeah. can live here and who can live and who can actually ascend the corporate or, 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 or career ladder and they can do it here. And so there's, there's many, many layers of, of different sort of almost like different bubbles within the main bubble. And yeah. it's kind of a fascinating place. And then, of course, you have what is in effect bonded slavery at the bottom of Indian, what? Chinese, Pakistani yeah. laborers. And that's shocking to see. I was going to say, you, you mentioned that it's a bubble in, in that part of the world. And the problem, of course, of bubbles is that they burst. Oh, yeah. And these guys, I mean, these guys overbuild like bejesus, right? If yeah. you turn, if you walk around tonight, like when I, when I stroll around tonight, or maybe get a taxi, and you look at all these huge, huge apartment blocks, like 40 stories, 50 stories, right? And there's not dozens of them. There are hundreds of them, right? Yeah. And most of them have no lights on. Have oh, no really? Lights on. So there's a huge amount, there's a huge vacancy issue here. And I think, wow, you know, this, these type of cities are profoundly unstable. Yeah. And what makes Dubai kind of stable is that they have an access to money from the UAE, from Abu Dhabi, who've got all the oil. Yeah. But I'd say failing that, there would be well, property booms and busts here all the time. There already are property booms and busts here all the time, but there'll be major ones. Yeah, but but also with the the green transition away from fossil fuel economy over the next ten years, they're going to start hurting. Oh yeah, when we start using renewables as our main source of energy, it might, might take a while, absolutely. but that that could contribute to the the bursting of that bubble. Well, absolutely. Oh no, 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 no. There is a a feeling of I get it now. Maybe it's just me of implode not imploding of Armageddon on the horizon here. I yeah. mean, history, history is full of amazing cities that no longer exist. That's one of the great relentless sort of re- repeating facts of, of history. Great cities that were once trading centers, there were once booms and busts, and they were mm. full of people. You know, the great, the great one is, you know, you take, take, take Babylon and go all the way back there. These cities have now disappeared. All the Sumerian cities, they all disappeared. All those, all those Mesopotamian cities, they all disappeared. All those biblical cities, most of them disappeared. And yeah. it, was basically the, it was basically the sands of time, that basically they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. These guys are in the right place at the right time now. But as you said, the writing's on the wall forever. for fossil fuels. It really is. Yeah. And, they've got to, and they've got to think of another trick, which is why the Saudi Arabians are trying to get in on the tourist game. And they're going to have big, big areas of Saudi Arabia where they're going to be selling booze quite soon because they know they have to come up with something else. And they want to... So the Dubaiization of Saudi Arabia will happen. Right. So it's all fascinating stuff. Yeah, it is. And ultimately, it's in places like that where the clash of cultures occurs. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and, and, and there's, there's, a, there's also a sense of an uneasy compromise between two cultures here. You know, we'll see yeah, how it goes. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. The clash of cultures, John, I want to talk about a culture war that is going on deep in the West. And it's a culture war we actually kind of scratched the surface last week, 
It's this idea of elite overproduction. Yes. Because I think this is critical for understanding what's going on, not just in Ireland, but all over the West. So let's go to that in a sec. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mark, actually, just before we start, I just want to give a big shout-out to... Brian, Connor, and Mark of the Yellow Door Coffee Company in Malahide. Apparently, we made it onto their top 10 list, or, or was it the podcast of choice for the week? So thanks a million, lads. John, I have always wanted to be number 10 in Malahide. That has been <laughs> my obsession. It's my career goal. I can now die and go to heaven. Number 10 in Malahide. You can't beat that. No, you certainly can't beat that. So tell us, Mark. What were you thinking about this week? I was just, I was contemplating today this notion of elite overproduction that we touched on last week. And I was reading Sally Rooney, who is a phenomenally brilliant novelist, okay? She is the writer of choice for the millennials. She writes books. My mate Lenny Abramson converted her normal people into TV. I mean, she's a kind of a phenomenon. And what I found really interesting is the more books she writes... The more people who read her, the more she connects with her readers, the more the kind of reviewers and opinion makers and the various what I would call salon arbiters of literary standards have a go at her. And I was thinking, right. like, could it be the fact that she writes well, she's got loads of readers? Does that annoy critics that she's actually doing a good job? Could it be she's simply a better writer than the critics and that really pisses them off and they need to bring her down a, a peg or two? And I was just thinking, it strikes me that jealousy is at the core of the anti-Sally Rooney brigade, right? And there's simply not enough room at the top for all those wannabe novelists who thought they would be the great millennial novelist. So Mm. therefore, knocking her feels like justice to them. Now, it's the reason I'm talking about this is I see this time and time and time again, that we have a culture that knocks people who are very, very good. And I'm trying to think, is there a link between that, the leave insert, the grind system, and the fact that the government are unpopular? 
and I think there is a link. Okay, so oh, there you on, have it. Us. This is my. So I think the <laughs> link is. There's the arc. Is, now tell us about there's it. There's the arc. The, the link is something that we touched on, which is a really fascinating idea called elite overproduction, which is a theory conceived yeah. by a guy called Peter Turchin, who's a Russian American, now historian, but was originally a biologist, right? And he argues that if you look at society, what actually makes society deeply unstable is elite overproduction, is the fact that society produces a meritocratic class, a class that thinks it merits to become part of the elite, but the economy can't deliver the sort of glamour, high status jobs or positions that those people want, and they get locked out. And the reason they get so fed up is that their expectations were very, very high and their expectations were not delivered. Now, he makes the point that if you take all the great revolutions like the French Revolution, the French Revolution was not a sans-culotte, the people without any possessions revolution. It was a revolution. Yeah. It was a Jacobin revolution of the elite, right? There's also another great... I mean, sometimes the way I look at the 1916 rising in Ireland was it wasn't the Irish against the English. It was the Irish against the Irish. The Brits had decided to go more or less and had signaled they were on the way out since about the 1860s, 1870s. And they created a class of Jesuits that they thought would rule Ireland after they left and would be loyal to them or in some way more malleable. So they're the people who went to Belvedere, Clongos Wood, Blackrock College, all those kind of high-end Catholic schools. They create a yeah. high-end professional Catholic class that would be easy to, to lead and be more pro-British than everybody else. But in fact, the 1916 Rising was an uprising of Christian brothers against the Jesuit class. So it was a Christian brother revolution against the fact that the Jesuits were going to take Ireland over from the Brits. And the local people, the local Christian brothers said, well, screw that. Bad enough being ruled by the Brits, but much worse being ruled by fellows who went to Colongo's College. So that's a theory I have. You, okay? the Christian if, brothers. <laughs> if, you think, though, if you think about it, it's all to do with elite overproduction. That the people who are actually revolutionary are never the people at the bottom. They're always the elite themselves, okay? They always come from the elite right. and they have a grievance. And that grievance is that they didn't find a place in the elite, despite the fact that they were actually educated and led to believe that they would be part of it. Now, his theory is that if you go through all great social revolutions, what you find is this elite. And he makes a very, very opposite case now, because right now everyone's trying to understand, you know, populism, where does it come from? And yeah, how, is, yeah, yeah. how is it that, take Brexit, that people from the home counties, the elite of the UK, voted for Brexit, as well as people from the Northeast, okay? And yeah. what he says is that, this new political movement is fascinating because it combines a sort of underachieving insider class, those people who didn't make the elite, with an actual outsider class, with an actual class that has been left behind. And it's that combination is fascinating. So if you think Dominic Cummins, right, if you think even, even your man himself, the prime minister, if you think Nigel Farage, all these people... They are not coming from the plebeian underclass. They are coming from the upper class, but they have a gripe against the upper class. And he's saying it's an overproduction of these people that they couldn't find their place. Now, if you take that, the same goes for poor old Sally Rooney. The reviewers who are so agin her are basically people who aren't as good as her, right? They are part right, of the yeah. elite, but there's no, there's no space for them. So they are members of this meritocratic class that we spoke about before, who yeah. believe 
that they have a right to be in the elite. They deserve it. And when they're not, they get really, really angry. You know, and that I think is what we see. And that's, it's spurred ambition that leads to radicalism rather okay. than an underlying economic cause. Just to go back a little bit, Mac. Yeah. Define elite for me. Elites, you're, 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 you're in the class that gets all the goodies. <laughs> okay, right. right. That's true. You turn left at the airport, you get the best seat at the restaurant, you've got status, you've got money, all that sort of stuff. That's the elite. And it can be anything. So it could be journalism, it could be lawyers, it could be doctors, it could be, you know, business people. It's anybody who has status, has a stake, has power in society. But they've but earned course, that status. Well, this is the whole thing. The thing about a meritocratic elite is they never understand the role of luck in success. And one thing I am completely convinced of is that luck plays a huge part in everybody's life. Huge part. Being in the right place at the right time, talking to the right people, having the right network, all that sort of stuff. Of course. And lots of it's luck, right? But we as a society in Ireland have thrown ourselves headlong into elite overproduction, right? So Turchin focuses what he he calls on the huge surplus of lawyers in the United States as evidence of elite overproduction. So lawyers, a high-status job, high-income job, all that sort of stuff, right? But the problem is the Americans are producing far too many of them. And then there's loads and loads of lawyers who don't make the cut. And what he says, this leads to a sort of a radicalization within the political firmament. The you know, disgruntled Steve Bannon's, worker. Steve Bannon's a great example, you know, right. of somebody who was rejected by his own class. And therefore, he feels really, really angry about it. And he wants to tear the fucking thing down. Like, yeah. it's not like, there's no yeah, halfway house with him. Yeah, yeah. Trump is the same. Trump is a man who understands rejection because he was rejected by New York's upper class. And therefore, he understands rejected people. That's very important to understand, that Trump understands the hurt of rejection. And that makes him attractive to lots of people. We don't see this because we can't see it because it's over there, it's in America. But there so- is an attraction. So how is that manifesting itself, say, here in Ireland? In Ireland? Well, there's a great example this week, right? It was the leaving cert point system. Oh, God, nothing yeah, so yeah. Nothing so underscores elite overproduction than kids getting 600 points, not being able to do the course they want. Yeah. And the problem with yeah. elite overproduction is that there just isn't enough space at the top. That's the problem. It's not yeah. that there's some great conspiracy. There just isn't enough room at the top. So the point system is a great example of elite overproduction. So what you see is all these poor kids who do really, really well relative to any other kid who ever did the leaving cert yeah. end up not being able to get the top place because we're overproducing too many of them. And then you take it down one extra layer. And while Turchin looks at American graduate schools for graduate lawyers we in Ireland have a great elite overproduction system here called the Grind School. So we even try to overproduce the elite before the kids even do their leaving cert. And it's yeah. called the Grind School. Yeah, so yeah. if you look at, there's a great uh, survey called Growing Up in Ireland, which is a longitudinal study. Yeah. Just under half of all leaving cert kids are, rece- are receiving a grind of one class and another. Okay, think about this. And a further 20% indicated that they intend to take a grind. But here's the key. 63% of Leaving Cert students from the top 20% of income bracket are receiving grinds. In stark contrast, only 33% of the bottom 
20%. So it's the elite producing the elite producing the elite, right? But yeah. the problem with grinds is they're incredibly expensive. So at grind schools like the Institute and all these sort of places, Asheville College and Bruce College, they're all like sure. yeah, yeah. seven or eight grand a year, right? But there is a weird thing, and this is what happens, is that grind schools are only good if only you're getting the grind and nobody else's, right? Consider yeah. this. But if everybody's getting a grind, it cancels the advantage out. Of course. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So what happens is that the more and more grind schools there are, and the more and more parents are trying to get their kids into the elite, and the more and more parents are pushing their kids towards the grind school, they don't realize that for every new grind school kid reduces the advantage of the grind school by a certain tiny fraction. The paradox of aggregation. You're, oh, listen to you, Johnny boy. I'm telling you, it's going in. It's going I'll be in. Up. I've got some grinds on that. The, <laughs> the paradox of aggregation. So you can see it in all areas of life. You see, it? I've always noticed it in, 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 in high heels. When I'm wearing high heels, John, I'm cross-dressing, <laughs> yes. right? I'm coming out now as a cross-dresser this afternoon. But when I wear high heels, it destroys. When in Dubai. When in Dubai. Isn't this in the shit you get up to over here, man? But... The point is, think about high heels. The amount of conversations I've had with women over the years about, oh, my feet are wrecked from the heels, right? Yeah. Okay. Women putting their feet into high heels. Why? Because high heels make girls feel taller, make girls actually taller. They can wear better clothes. They feel more confident, all that sort of stuff, right? But high heels only give you an advantage if nobody else wears high heels, right? Right. But if everyone wears high heels, everyone's the same height. So you only end up with brutal feet and pains in your calf and you don't get the advantage. These are the things I think about, John, when I'm walking around the shopping malls of, uh, of Dubai, that the paradox of aggregation that exists in the grind schools exists in the market for high heels because everybody in high heels is cancelling each other's advantage out. Okay, ju just give us that definition of the paradox of aggregation. So the paradox of aggregation definition is what is good for the individual is not always good for the collective. Or, another way of looking at it is, if everybody else is doing it, you lose advantage. So take, for yeah. example, the high heels. It's great for one woman, or maybe one cross-dresser, I don't know, to wear high heels, okay? Gives him yeah. or her the advantage, right? But if everybody's wearing high heels, the advantage is negated. It's great yeah. for one kid to do a grind on their own, but if everybody's doing a grind, the advantage is negated. And again, when we go back to our elite overproduction, what happens then is all these kids doing grinds, all these kids getting high points, all this expectation that they're going to do well, right? They go into university and then they realize that we are producing loads and loads of the same type of elite. And what happens to those kids then is they come out of university and they, they now have to do a master's. When I was, like, I did a master's, right, John? So when yeah. I was in university, 12% of Irish people went to university in the 1980s, mm. right? The late 80s. It's now about 50%, right? Yeah. And I ended up doing a master's. It was kind of unheard of. Very few people did master's. Now... Almost all kids want to do masters because they feel they have to. And this the is another sign. Of, yeah, this is the other sign of the elite overproduction. Can, can I just say though that that the flip side of this, or the upside of what you're talking about, though, is that if you end up with so many well-educated kids, then that will lead to more competition, and competition leading to 
innovation, initiative, entrepreneurship, all that kind of stuff. So surely that's a it good thing. It should do. Yeah, I mean, what we're looking at is we're looking at, it's like everything, you know, we're looking at the upside, the downside, etc. What you find, though, is that the more educated you are, the less likely you ever are to go into business and the more less likely you ever are to be an entrepreneur. It's an interesting thing. Really? Educated people do not make great entrepreneurs. That's just the, wow. the way it is. Ed, okay. Educated people go into the professions. They go into more of the high status jobs. They're much less likely to actually take risks. And you can argue that education is a de-risking process. The more education, yes. yeah, yeah. more educated you are, the more you de-risk life, right? Whereas yeah. the entrepreneurs yeah. are kind of swimming in much more risky waters. So it is an interesting thing. So education and entrepreneurial spirit are not necessarily well-made bedfellows. But I take your point right. okay. that as, yeah. the, as the society becomes more educated, it's a better thing. It, it becomes more tolerant. It becomes nicer. It becomes more liberal. It becomes more understanding. It should do all these things. But what it does do, John, is what happens is if we produce all these educated graduates and if we produce all this elite, we need, therefore, to have an economy that can actually deliver on their expectations and their aspirations. And if we have an economy that is full of bottlenecks, those people will get really angry. So, for example, take right now the educated graduate class and take the housing market. So this is our arc. We're trying to get from Sally Rooney to Sinn Féin. It's a quick leap, but it's a nice leap, okay? Right, go go for it. So, So I'll give you some figures. What I've done is I've taken graduate salaries... And I've expressed them as a function of rent, okay? Not of anything okay. else. So if you look, there's a, there's a thing called gradireland.ie, which is a survey, right? And it said the top graduate salary is around 35,000 euros. So that's the top of the elite. So that's the elite of the elite, right? Yeah, yeah. That means their take-home pay is around 29 grand after tax, which is a lot of money for a graduate. However, if you look at DAFT, right, the average monthly rental of a one-bedroom place in Dublin ranges from 1,359 euros in North County, Dublin, that's a low, to a high of 1,817 in Dublin 4. So what you're saying is the elite of the elite that we're overproducing, if they wanted to live in a one-bedroom apartment, which they thought, you know what, I've done all this study, I've now got a good job, I deserve this, this is, I want to move out, Mm. they would be actually spending between 56% and 75% of their after-tax earnings on rent alone. In other words, it's unattainable for them. Yes, yeah, yeah. And that's why they're getting frustrated, and they're getting frustrated at lots of things. There's lots of people saying, all these people objecting to one-bedroom flats are not homes. You know, this thing is going on at the moment. One-bedroom flats are homes. If you're a, if you're a single person or a, or a couple, a one-bedroom flat is an ideal home, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. But you can see why they're getting frustrated because their expectations are spurned and there's more and more of them. And the housing market, the reason we need to fix the housing market is because if we don't fix the housing market, the expectation of this overproduced elite will smash into the reality of a rigged housing market and they will get deeply frustrated. They're going to get jealous. They're going to get indignant. I mean, you know, what is Twitter after all, John? Only the echo chamber for unhappy and maybe unfulfilled arts graduates. You're particularly active on Twitter, though. I know. <laughs> but you see what I mean? Like, this, this, yeah. this, this anger is coming up. But on a much more serious note, this is the serious note, right? 
an unappreciated and unfulfilled meritocrat with a sense of victimhood can easily team up with the real victims, the people who have been actually left behind to create new political movements, right? Which don't make sense from the traditional right-left, conservative, liberal, middle-class, working-class perspective. And that's what we're seeing all over the world. And this is why it's fascinating, because it explains these weird coalitions that you have between Brexiteers who are kind of upper middle class and working class. It explains Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin is getting a huge amount of graduates who would have never voted Sinn Féin, and it's got its working class base. And what is happening, it's the victims of elite overproduction who feel that they deserve a better Ireland are voting Sinn Féin because Sinn Féin is actually saying, we'll deliver it to you. And Sinn Féin is also getting the working class. Yeah, Kevin Cunningham was talking about this a little while ago, if you remember on the podcast, about the growth of Sinn Féin and what a band of kind of disparate kind of people are supporting Sinn Féin now. And what you're saying then is that part of that is due to this overproduction of elite. People who would not necessarily vote for Sinn Féin in, in the past. As you know, from a very young age, your mate is a man looking for a theory. Always. <laughs> a walker. I have now found a theory that explains the world for me. I am, it was like Darwin. Darwin was looking for a theory for years and then he got it from Malthus. You know, you walk yeah. around the place looking for a theory, right? I now have that theory. I think this elite overproduction by Peter Turchin is very interesting. And I suspect the deeper we go into it, the more light it will shed on the world around us, the more light it will shed on the graduate class who are upset, and the more light it will shed on the likely economic and political movements which will emerge within the next decade. So let me ask you a question. If this overproduction of elite, as you say, is creating a new kind of populism and a disgruntled class leading to tensions and, you know, possibly social unrest taken to the extreme. How do we de-escalate that? How do we sort out this overproduction? It's a very good question, John, to de-escalate. Look, if I was 21, 22, 23, and I'd be, I'd be, I'd be mad now. I would be yeah. really, really angry at what's going on, you know? Actually, do you know what? Let's just hold that. Let's come back to it. Let's look at the way in which we can de-escalate pressure points. But also, John, not to get away from the fact that sometimes pressure is good because pressure is a significant sign something's not right underneath. And if something's not right underneath, you got to fix it. Just a quick note to say thank you to all our Patreon supporters. And if you fancy supporting us on Patreon, you can check us out at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. 